analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. We've got a lot to talk about today. We'll talk about civil forfeiture laws and the perspective of at least one lawyer as well as legal marijuana. That all coming in a little bit. But we're going to start off the show talking about salmon uh, and a number of fronts. A pleasure to be joined on the phone by, say, the MLA for Saanich North and the Islands, Adam Olson. Uh, good morning, Mr. Olson. How are you? Good morning. I'm uh, doing great. <laughs> All right. Listen, I got you on because I know you are very passionate about the uh, the salmon issue, and it's one on a number of fronts that is throwing up a number of concerning uh, warning signs in some areas and flat-out emergency alarms in others, uh, namely the steelhead return uh, here locally in, in the Thompson as well as in the Chilcotin to our north. But uh, we'll get into some of these things. One thing I wanted to talk to you about off the top was uh, we recently got numbers here at Radio NL for the sockeye salmon return. That is one of the the bigger salmon returns every four years we have the dominant cycle it's not only a big thing uh, for the environment for the fish for uh, first nations culture all down the line including tourism in the adams river run which is considered one of the most historic salmon returns in the entire world now 10 million fish adam came back that's not a number to laugh at but you look back at the previous cycle uh 2010 24 million fish in the dominant year 2014 19 million fish in the dominant year which means somewhere around 14 million fish have vanished over eight years. Uh, your reaction? Uh, well, it's certainly the, uh, the the type of news that we're hearing from runs uh, right across the province, and it's the, it's the type of news that, uh, that we hope creates a, a sense of urgency, both at the federal and at the provincial level. And, and indeed, I think actually I shouldn't even just add both, but uh, First Nations and, uh, and local governments as well. Uh, these, this is information that I think um, that needs to help instill a sense of urgency in, in how we are uh, taking action on the, uh, I think, on the report that we're going to be talking about here in just a few minutes. But how, how we are uh, taking a look at salmon habitat, the protection, the restoration, how we're organizing government to ensure that, uh, that salmon policy is at the center of, of the decisions that are being made uh, in the provincial and federal governments. Yeah, and you're a member of the BC Wild Salmon Advisory Council. Uh, just last week, you released recommendations for the Made in BC Wild Salmon Strategy. And I guess uh, with the strategy in mind, in this particular problem under the spotlight, I mean, again, 10 million fish is a respectable number, uh, and it gives us a little bit of time here, uh, as opposed to, say, the steelhead, when you only got 120, 145 uh, fish coming back in the return, where, where that one is teetering literally on the brink of extinction. So when you look at the problems with the steelhead and the alarms now ringing over with the sockeye uh with the strategy in mind and with actions that we can take what have you what are you guys what kind of char, what kind of course are you guys charting to to kind of help here well I, I alluded to it a little bit i mean i think that you're, you're absolutely right where you see over over a 10-year period uh a a run that had 24 million fish now cut uh in well less than half uh, now returning, uh, and as you mentioned, the uh, the steelhead issues and and the, the the lack of ability to seemingly protect this uh, species at risk uh, in the in the Thompson steelhead. Um, I think that what we're hoping to be able to do with the Wild Salmon Advisory Council and creating and the recommendations that were were put forward, uh, we're really focused on the provincial uh, policy making areas. They're really really heavily focused on. The areas that the pro- provincial government can have an impact, and uh, so one of that one of the most important issues that we face is 
you know, we got a letter back, Shane said, uh, from uh, Forest Lands and Natural Resource Operations. We got a letter back that said there are six ministries that all have a decision-making uh, power that impacts salmon. And when, when we in our office and our con- uh, BC Green Caucus looked at that, we said, well, look, if there's, if there's six ministries leading, then there's no one leading. And so this is a really critical piece that biologists and, and former government employees that come through my office, uh, how government is organized really determines the kind of policy, the kind of decisions that are made. And so that's something that I think that we really need to look at over the, over the coming uh, months uh, in the legislature. The second piece to that, which I think is really, really important and is foundational to uh, the, the steelhead stocks and the salmon stocks, and that is we have to make sure that we're protecting habitat. There's a lot of pristine, you know, there's a, there's a lot uh, of reasons why we should have a sense of urgency here, but there's also a lot of really good things that we could be, uh, be um, celebrating, and that is there's, there is pristine habitat that remains intact. We need to make sure that that's protected so that we're not talking about how we're restoring it uh, after the fact. So we know that restoration costs a lot of money. We're going to have to probably restore um, some, uh, some creeks and streams and areas. I think that's a good deal. But I think that uh, the better deal is protecting what we know we have. Yeah. Let's start diving into specifics here. Uh, and one of the ones I want to circle back is the point you made initially, um, and you've made it before, that the salmon, the responsibility for it is spread across a number of provincial ministries. Then you throw the federal government in there, and then you throw the various stakeholders, First Nations, commercial fishermen, different communities, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, federal jurisdiction over ocean waters, provincial jurisdiction over river waters, uh, and it all adds up to a big bureaucratic mess. How do you navigate through that to advocate for the salmon because i think that at its core is one of the key things to to kind of figure out here in order to get to a solution i think one of the things that we've done is we've um you know and it's been a i think it's been a concerted effort of ours in the bc green caucus to put uh some volume some uh, amplification behind the message that we need to be putting uh salmon policy uh lens over things and that's a that's been i think successful we've been able to help generate some momentum. The provincial government's picked it up. Premier Horgan is is very much a, a wild salmon uh, premier. We know that, and so um, that's that's been an important piece. Going to you know the government, provincial government meeting with the federal government, everything that we've been hearing from those meetings, uh, coming out of those meetings, actually on both sides is a commitment from the the feds and the province to stop blaming each other. And I think that's really. Um, one of the things that we've noted that we noticed uh, pretty early on in our work, and I'd stand up in question period and I'd ask the question, uh, you know, you'd get a minister that would deflect. Well, you know, we know that uh, you, everybody knows that we love wild salmon, but uh, we also know that the federal government has a lot of jurisdiction. We're hearing that less and less, and and there has been a concerted effort for the province and the feds to stop deflecting to each other. Um, it's been a mechanism that I think has been able to. Uh, been able to, uh, you know, kind of keep the pressure off both levels of government. Uh, they've been able to deflect one another. There seemingly is a commitment to stop doing that and start taking responsibility, which ultimately, uh, you know, we hope our governments take responsibility for the policy areas uh, that they're responsible for, and we're starting to see that more and more. So I think, I think that it's, it's continuing to keep the pressure on this and making sure that uh, every time that there is a deflection that people are being had ministers and government and bureaucrats are being held accountable for the policy areas that we actually do have control over. And in British Columbia, it's actually quite a bit, you know, agriculture to uh, transportation, uh, tourism, um, uh, 
forest lands, mining, you know, basically every aspect of the provincial leg, uh, legislative powers uh, has a, has an impact on salmon and on steelhead. And so if we're making better decisions, um, then we will get better outcomes. Uh, part of the wild salmon strategy on the habitat side, I and mean, we've lost a bunch of habitat over the decades, uh, and there has been work and money dedicated to, to addressing that issue, but apparently not enough. Uh, um, on the wild salmon strategy, you want to protect salmon habitats, you want to develop new laws and regulations, and you want to increase enforcement. So uh, how do we go about doing that in order to win back what we may have lost? I think that, well, so I think the first the first and most important step here is for us to identify and 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 in some respects, this has been done already. There are d- departments within forest lands, departments within environment that have been kind of capturing the, that, the pristine habitat. Uh, I think that's really important that we understand habitats that are, uh, and ecosystems that are functioning well and putting a level of protection on it. And, and it's easy for me to sit here on the radio and, and talk to your listeners about protecting habitat. What's more difficult, of course, is protecting habitat, which is, making the difficult decisions that perhaps um, logging activities are not going to happen uh, to the extent that they were in certain areas, that mining decisions about mines, decisions about other resources, let's just broaden it out here a little bit, are going to have to be made, and they're going to be tough decisions. Where we build our neighborhoods, how we treat riparian areas, those are going to be decisions that we have to make that are going to... Uh, we're going to have to make different decisions than we've made in the past. So that's the first piece. The second piece is taking a look at where we can have the biggest impact for the lowest amount of money. And, and I think that there's a, there is a process here. It's an extension of that first piece, which is what areas are, you know, what streams and creeks are being blocked by a single culvert or a bridge or a dam. And, you know, where are we going to have the highest amount of impact for the lowest amount of money? And, and, and putting together a plan that, that, then, uh, that then starts to address the, the restoration piece of it uh, is, I think, the second step to it. And there's this, the, the Fish Passage Technical Working Group, this little-known group. It's a multi-ministry group of, of uh, civil servants that have identified tens of thousands of blocks of salmon habitat, uh, and they've even started to design some of the fixes and, you know, they get a very small amount of money, and we've been advocating government give them a bigger budget to do more work quicker. They, they know. They've, they've cataloged uh, where we can get the highest value for our investment, and we just now need to start uh, taking the action. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Adam Olson, who's the Green Party MLA for Saanich North and the Islands, also a member of the Salmon Advisory Council. We'll resume our conversation about the plight of the salmon right after this. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. We're going to continue our discussion with Adam Olson, the MLA for Saanich North and the Islands, also a member of the Wild Salmon Advisory Council. Let's talk about what you just said a minute ago there about tough decisions being made. I know you use logging, for example, but um, fishing is something near and dear, uh, as I mentioned, only to First Nations, to commercial fishermen, sport fishermen. And it seems like any time a serious step or a painful decision is about to be made or is made, there's a hue and a cry, and all of a sudden we end up back in the same place where we started. How do we make those tough decisions? decisions and more importantly make them stick in order to accomplish the goals we've set out here in the wild salmon strategy yeah 100 percent. we got to stop fighting over the last fish i think that's the 
Like, who's going to catch the last fish? And, and there seems to be this perspective. And there's the herring fisheries going on right now out here on the coast. And there, there seems to be this perspective that we can continue to fish like we've fished uh, in the past. And that's just, you know, we, we will be standing on the edge of the, the seashore wondering where all the fish went uh, because we will, have, we will have decimated them. And so, or they will not be there. So I think what's important is that we understand that there's a conservation aspect of this and we have to be, uh, and I say we, politicians have to be willing to have difficult conversations in a respectful and mature way with the various uh, stakeholders and, and having, uh, uh, having conservation discussions. You know, one of the, I'm part of the Sartla First Nation and we have a food and ceremonial fishery that for the first time in five years, last year we had sockeye and, and the, our chief and council, our leadership made the decision that we were not going to fish and we were not going to have fish. And it was devastating for our community, but um, we're going to have to start making those tough decisions. We're going to have to protect the Thompson, the Thompson steelhead. We're going to have to make it an endangered species. And that's going to mean that the chum fishery in the, in the Fraser is going to have to become more sophisticated. We're going to have to, there's a lot of chum fish, but the, the reality is, is that the bycatch is, is going to um, force another species into extinction. That's going to be a tough decision. We have to have a mature conversation about it. And I, unfortunately, these are emotional conversations and not mature conversations. And so it is incumbent upon leaders, uh, myself, uh, others in the provincial and federal government, to have real mature conversations about these, these competing values and how we are going to become more sophisticated. If we want to continue to fish, we're going to have to be more sophisticated in how we do it. We're going to have to be more sensitive to the ecosystems and to, uh, and to the species. So uh, it's not easy. It's easy for me to be on, like I said, it's easy for me to be on the radio talking about it. What's more difficult is actually taking the action. Yeah, when you mentioned the chum fishery, which is uh, which is a big bycatch issue, as you, as you alluded to there, uh, concerning the steelhead, and you said it's going to be, we're going to have to look at it and make it more. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be complicated, I believe, is what you said. What did you mean by that? How do we how do we tackle that in order to separate the chum and the steelhead? Do you shut that fishery down? What do you do? Um, well, I think that I think data is important. Understanding, uh, like. The, my understanding of the way that this works is that these fish come into the river at the same time. And so, um, you know, if we've got, uh, if we've got a big chum fishery happening at the mouth of the Fraser or in the Fraser and, uh, they're scooping up, uh, they're scooping up the steelhead with it, that's a, it's going to be devastating. It has proven to be devastating. Um, I think some of the way that we, you know, the ways that we fish as well, you know, big net fisheries, uh, there's a lot of bycatch and there's a lot of waste that's created from that. And, uh, what's, you know, fascinating is I, I attended a conference a few years back about called looking back to build the future. And one of the things that we talked about was the ancient fishing techniques of indigenous people on the coast. We think that, you know, the only way for us to fish commercially is to go out and chase, chase them around in a big boat with a big net. But there are, there are literally dozens or hundreds of different fishing techniques that could be, employed at a commercial level um, with some sophistication. We just have to have an open mind enough to, uh, to embrace that and to take a look at those opportunities to see maybe we can be more selective in our commercial fishery. Maybe we can implement different techniques. I know that that's a big change for people, but you know, if we want to continue to be fishermen, if we want to continue to catch fish, we have to make sure that there's fish to, fish to catch. And uh, right now I think we're doing a better job of, of, 
ruining those uh, those species and those runs and and leaving nothing for the future, I think it's uh, incumbent upon us to start to explore uh, ways that we can be creative in in uh, in our efforts. So uh, it's a uh, like I said. It's easy for me to sit here and have this conversation. We've got to be willing to have them on the ground, dozens of conversations, hundreds of conversations on the ground with the people that are impacted by it. Um, And one of those conversations is going to be conservation and different conservation measures. Uh, the big question, the climate change question to you, Adam, uh, and the wild salmon strategy perspective, uh, I don't know if you guys dealt with it or not. Uh, I didn't see anything when I gave it a quick read over the weekend, but um, warming ocean waters, you have situations uh, in the summer where drought conditions lower river levels to the point where some salmon simply can't get upstream. These are the things Mother Nature's throwing at us. How do we deal with that? Well, you know, so Dr. Brian Riddell, who is the uh, CEO, current CEO, until the end of this month of the Pacific Salmon Foundation, I just announced his retirement, actually, but he, he was raised two issues in the last little while, which kind of caught, caught me. One, uh, the Cowichan River, uh, the Cowichan Lake is at 60% of its uh, annual uh, water levels right now. Uh, that's devastating. And one, I think the email said, um, you know, summer droughts are one thing we could probably work our way through. Winter droughts, that's a real problem. And so water, you know, you see water being uh, in, that, in that first recommendation that we make, water is, in a, is captured in that. I think it's important. Uh, it's, it's actually, well, I think it's important. It's absolutely critical to salmon, of course, is water. Um, and, you know, like the, uh, the, the forestry practices that I was talking about, you know, the, the heat, the, the temperature of our rivers, creeks, and streams is really problematic. And when we uh, peel them back to the skin uh, and, don't, and don't have the shading over top of them, then, we, then the water temperature in the creeks increases to the streams. It increases to the rivers, and the Fraser River then becomes a, uh, a very hazardous place for salmon to be, uh, steelhead to be. And so I think that, again, we have to be making the decisions around our our creeks and streams and watersheds. We have to be looking at life as being, uh, we have to be looking at these decisions like we want to be living in this place uh, a decade or two from now. We have to be making longer-term decisions about uh, how we're going to treat the ecosystems that sustain life. And for most of us, uh, our watersheds uh, have not had that uh, that kind of attention paid to them. And I think it's it's a well past time that we start to look at the value and the quality of our watersheds and and as communities uh, stand up and fight for them. So uh, climate change is certainly going to be uh, going to be impacting salmon in a bunch of different ways. Actually, the other way that that uh, Dr. Riddell pointed out, and it's one that one that I don't think that people think about too often, and that's uh, our estuaries. So you know, he said, what uh, what are we going to do about the estuary of the, the Fraser River estuary? where sea level rise will likely inundate it and the entire ecosystem will change uh, probably within the next you know 10 to 15 years who's looking out who's looking out for that is there anybody in government that's uh, that's working on that issue and and i think that it's got to be put in the context of all the work that we're doing here that uh, if we're going to be restoring creeks and streams that we have to be looking out for our estuaries and of course sea level rise for low-lying areas is a big problem anyway so it's something that's going to be dealt with. But from a fish perspective, uh, it's important uh, to, to acknowledge just how complex uh, the work is that we have ahead. And then uh, once we've acknowledged it, 
get on with working through the complexity. All right, uh, we're out of time, but real quick question to you to end this. Uh, do you think the steelhead can be saved or no? I go into every aspect of my work with uh, the hope uh, and then as well with, uh, with a positive mind frame that we can uh, accomplish what we're setting out to accomplish. I, I think that if I go into this work uh, with a negative mind frame, believing that we can't do something, then that will be the uh, easiest and surest, quickest way to not accomplishing it. So for me, I go into it with a sense of hopefulness and a, and a sense of positivity that, yes, absolutely we can. And uh, it starts right within the building that I work in, in making different decisions and making uh, more informed evidence-based decisions. And so I have the, the hope and the positivity that, yes, we can, we can save those fish. Adam, a pleasure. Thanks for taking some time to talk about this important subject. Thanks a lot for having me. Always appreciate the opportunity. That was Adam Olson. He's the Green Party MLA for Saanich North and the Islands, also a member of the Wild Salmon Advisory Council, which issued its report and recommendations just last week to tackle the challenges and, in some cases, outright emergencies on the salmon front. We'll take a quick break to the bottom of the hour. On the other side, concerns about civil forfeiture in Kyla Lee. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined on the lawn uh, on the line by a lawyer for Acumen Law, Kyla Lee. Good morning, Kyla. How are you? Good morning, Shane. Thank you for having me. No, it's always good to chat. So listen, um, a lot of has been made over the last few years of the province's civil forfeiture laws, ostensibly uh, a tool to go in and seize assets, criminal assets, whether they're houses, boats, cars, what have you. Uh, uh, press releases have gone out regularly over the last few years saying, okay, here's the amount we've seized. This is where the money is going. Uh, everyone seems to think this is fine and dandy. Uh, okay, yay, applause, whatever. Uh, you have some concerns with some of the new tweaks and changes to the civil forfeiture law. Walk me through it. What are your concerns? Well, one of the biggest concerns is this new power that police are going to have to take vehicles from drivers on the basis of the officer's perception that the driver didn't stop the vehicle soon enough. So, uh, you know, ordinarily the police would have to have some reason to believe that the vehicle was involved in criminal activity, whether it was used as a, a courier vehicle for trafficking drugs or whether it was purchased with money that came from uh, unlawful activity. But now the legislation is being expanded to say that a vehicle is presumed to be an instrument of unlawful activity if a person fails to stop uh, in a reasonable amount of time when signaled to do so by a police officer and the manner in which the vehicle was driven could have caused bodily harm to somebody. Okay, so ostensibly what's, what's the problem with all of that then? The problem with that is that we see all sorts of people who are not involved in the type of criminal activity that, you know, the civil forfeiture process is aimed at uh, get into situations where they don't stop quickly enough for police. You know, women often are told um, to, you know, drive a few blocks to a well-lit area if you're being pulled over at night as a safety concern, but police officers will perceive that as a sign of impaired driving or potentially ev evading police. If you're speeding, that's a uh, Conduct, driving conduct that could potentially endanger somebody. It could potentially cause bodily harm. And in those circumstances, if you drove an extra two or 300 meters and you were speeding before the police tried to pull you over, that would be enough for them to seize your vehicle under the civil forfeiture laws and sell it for the profit of the government. 
Yeah, so how do we get around that? I mean, I've been in situations in the past where I believe it was uh, on the Port Manor, one of the bridges, where I got caught speeding and uh, I proceeded to the other end of the bridge and pulled over, and that was fine under that particular circumstance. Yeah, it's difficult to get around that because it really comes down to the subjective perception of the officer. It's not about whether your conduct was objectively reasonable, but what the officer believed. And if you have a justification like, you know, you don't stop on a bridge because it's more dangerous to stop on the bridge, the burden is now on you at the civil forfeiture hearing to prove that that's why you drove that way um, and to prove that you weren't using your vehicle as an instrument of unlawful activity in the way that that's sort of understood with civil forfeiture. So it puts a positive burden on the driver of the vehicle to prove that they weren't doing something unlawful and to justify their driving behavior, Um, but they have to go through all of that time and expense and have their vehicle taken away from them in the meantime. How do you get around, I mean, assuming you have a single police officer sitting in a vehicle and they choose to create their own version of events, for example, I'm not saying that a police officer would, but uh, it is a possibility. And we'll use my case, for example. What if, you know, I was told to proceed to the other end of the bridge? I did. Uh, and then later on, the officer says, oh, this guy, he he wouldn't stop for me when I asked him to and, and you know, went another kilometer, um, blah, blah, blah. And it suddenly becomes my word versus his. How do you, how do you solve that problem? I mean, is it a dash cam? How do you get around it just being the police officer's word versus the driver's? That, that's what the civil forfeiture process is uh, really flawed at doing because there's not a really strong mechanism to test the evidence. The manner in which these hearings proceed um, proceed much like a uh, much like an ICBC trial might proceed. So you have examinations for discovery and then ultimately potentially a, a trial or a hearing in court um, where the evidence is finally tested. But you're talking about that taking place, you know, months at best and years in reality down the road. In the meantime, you don't have your vehicle. And if you're somebody who doesn't have significant financial means, if this is, you know, if this is the vehicle that you rely on to get to work and you lose your job because you can't get to work, you're not going to be able to afford to go through this whole process and to be without a vehicle. You're going to have to replace that vehicle before this entire process is resolved. And it's not going to be worth it to you to spend the money fighting to get the car back when the car itself may only be worth $2,500. It seems to me that this sort of fits a rhythm over the last couple of years about changes, uh, be they to tough new drinking driving laws, tough new speeding laws, now civil forfeiture. These are things that most people aren't going to oppose on the surface of it all. I mean, who's going to you know, say, oh, you mean we need to be better or kinder to drunk drivers or we need to be more lenient to speeders or we need to, you know, we need to treat criminals or people who are potentially uh, could lose their, their property through civil forfeiture a little more kindly. It, it seems to me there's a rhythm here of we're going to choose something that uh, is going to be good sort of for the public to kind of digest and then we kind of throw away some rights at the end of it all. Well, exactly. And this is the same public that has indicated overwhelming support for a public inquiry into money laundering and how it's affected, you know, our real estate market, our luxury car market, all of these things have been affected by money laundering and the fentanyl trade. And so the government 
you know, trots out this legislation and they say, here, here's what we're doing. We're doing something. We're going to try and take the money away from criminals who are profiting off the fentanyl crisis and who are laundering their money in casinos. We're going to be able to get back at them. And if you say, well, wait a minute, innocent people are going to be caught up in this. The government's response is, well, there's a process and it'll all be sorted out in the end. What's not being calculated here is the real cost to the people who are affected by this, who aren't involved in the unlawful activity. And this legislation is far too overbroad. It catches far too much um, innocent activity, like regular driving behavior, that, uh, that ultimately isn't going to achieve the goals of the legislation. The problem is that the courts, if it's challenged in court, are probably going to find that because the motive of the government is to address what is clearly a crisis in this province with money laundering and drug trafficking, that it's justified under Section 1. Is this is this strictly to do with vehicles, Kyla? I mean, the civil forfeiture law sees houses, boats, all sorts of stuff. Any concerns on the other end of things or no? The reverse onus is very concerning. Anytime the government puts a burden on a person affected by an action to prove that they're innocent, that can have a huge, uh, a huge impact on their ability to obtain that evidence. Um, I mean, if your friend loans you, you know, $6,000 because you're going to go buy a boat and you need to pay cash because you're buying it off Craigslist and you get pulled over and you've got $6,000 cash and the police seize it, to prove the source of that fund is a lot more difficult when you don't have a receipt or a paper trail. Um, so it, it does affect not just people who are, uh, who are drivers, that there's a, a larger effect here. Another concern about this legislation is that there's a provision that allows um, anybody who has a prior criminal organization conviction to be treated as a person committing an offense for a criminal organization for every single civil forfeiture action in the future. So if you were convicted 20 years ago of something associated with a gang, you turned your life around, you got out of the gang, you're, you're working a good, well-paying job, contributing member of society, not involved in anything illegal, but you have something seized under the civil forfeiture laws, you're assumed because of that prior conviction, despite the fact that you've made every positive change that could be asked of you, you're assumed to still be involved in gang activity until you prove that you're not. <laughs> How does one prove that they're not? Well, this is the thing. You can't, you know, prove a negative proposition, and yet that's what the legislation is requiring people to do. And it also doesn't just call a conviction, you know, get, getting found guilty in court. It expands the definition of conviction to include circumstances where people are found not criminally responsible by reason of mental disorder or defect. So people who are, uh, who are mentally ill and not responsible for their actions are still held responsible under the civil forfeiture legislation. It's absolutely abhorrent and discriminatory. Okay, so you covered a number of, of concerns there. The last one's a doozy. Um, what do we do about it? I mean, you mentioned a minute ago, if you challenge us in court, uh, it doesn't sound like uh, it might be something that could fly potentially. So how, how do you, how, what's the next step here? How do you address this problem? I think the biggest way to address this is, is putting pressure on the government to try and amend these sections of the legislation to be more clear about their application, that there has to be, you know, a, a contemporaneous connection between the conviction and the uh, subsequent seizure um, that, that makes the, you know, makes the case for it to be, uh, to be connected, not affecting people who turn their lives around, to eliminate the, uh, the um, use of prior fine 
findings of not criminal responsibility due to mental disorder or defect and to clarify the wording of the legislation so that innocent drivers um, who are you know committing just regular motor vehicle act violations aren't affected by the scope of this legislation so we need to put pressure on the government to amend the legislation to address these concerns I guess my last question is, do you have concerns the government's going to sort of get addicted to uh, the revenue stream or even the sort of good media of, oh, look at us, we're going out and we're seizing these gangsters' houses and their homes and their cars and their boats, and, and, yeah, and oh, look, we're making all this money, and this money in turn is going to do all these good things. Uh, could they get addicted to that to the point where they begin to overlook what's right and wrong? Oh, absolutely. And we see this happening down south. You know, we've we've seen the warning signs about using civil forfeiture this way from the United States, where people have things seized all the time, where the process is very difficult to get things back. And local governments rely on that income such that police are essentially out there just collecting high-end cars and nice houses and cash for the purposes of creating government revenue. Wowzers. Kyle, always a pleasure to chat. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. That's Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. We'll be right back on The Woodford Show. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. We finish off talking legal marijuana. A lot of talk recently about uh, legal marijuana businesses, retail that is, with one government store up the hill here in Kamloops, and more on the way, including a new private store that's just opened up on the North Shore. Uh, but the city is now turning its attention to producers of legal marijuana. Remember, these stores have to have a product on the shelf. Someone has to produce that product. To talk about that and how the city is approaching that particular angle of the legal marijuana regime is the city's business license inspector, David Jones. Dave, as I mentioned, I'm noticing that we're beginning to tackle the production side. We've dealt uh, largely with retail facilities across the city, and I, I assume we will continue to do so for a while. But uh, now we're looking at actual bylaws governing the regulations around growing, producing cannabis itself. Uh, how do these differ from what we see on the retail side? Well, of course, the production facility is the big uh, growers or micro-growers that will be providing the product the province to actually make it to the retail shelves. So at the time, the uh, federal government back in 2013 allowed the production of medical cannabis. Uh, just bringing up our zoning bylaws and other regulations, uh, the production of recreational cannabis at locations that are the medical cannabis. Yeah, and uh, explain that because one of the interesting sort of tangents on, on cannabis production is um, there is the division between medical marijuana regulated federally and uh, sort of, I guess, retail marijuana, which is regulated provincially. How do you guys tackle that? Well, again, you know, we've been advised by the federal government that if you were to go in and ask production license, that uh, you would be to produce cannabis either for the medical or for the recreational side. So the difference would be is whether or not you still are going to offer your service to the medical um, practice the medical patients to through a Health Canada card uh, that you would be able to do that. But for the most part, um, most of the requires that we're getting in the city of Camels to ensure that they have the ability to produce cannabis, to get their cannabis into the recreational side. 
All right. Uh, now, what about the rules around these facilities? I see there's a difference, for example, on how many meters they have to be away from, from other things as opposed to retail. Retail is 100 meters away from, from different things like schools and, and other outlets, etc. This is 150. Why? Well, I think you got to remember, a production facility is not going to be, you're not going to, it's not a storefront uh, uh a building. This will be a standalone, quite like in an industrial site uh, that we, you would probably never even know that it's a production facility out there. So it's not, it's not, it's not. They can't even. It's not an oranges to oranges comparison. However, we do have the proximities because we know from the research that potentially that there could be some impact, maybe from some smell or some odor. So we want to ensure that those production facilities are far enough away from, from these other locations that wouldn't impact those other property uses. And how are we doing that? Are they restricted to certain types of land, or, or are they allowed uh, essentially anywhere within whatever guidelines? So exactly. So again, our medical, our medical growers or producers were allowed in the industrial land. So again, we're still keeping that to that I two I three industrial type land. Um, obviously, the, because uh, cannabis is the is I guess designated as a as a, a, a um, something that be grown on agriculturalized an agricultural product, then they're also allowed to grow on agricultural land. Depending on whether that agricultural land is in the agricultural land reserved to their province, will be some further restrictions as to what kind of facility and how that facility is built to allow it to be on agricultural land. And I know in the case, Dave, of like wineries, for example, you can have your vineyards and your wine production and, you know, you can go into a Harper, a Harper Trail or Valley, whatever it is down the road here, uh, and you can you can sample the wine and, and do that kind of sort of touristy wine tasting stuff. Uh, with the marijuana grow facility, is there a capacity to have sort of that craft avenue where they can not only grow and produce, but you can go in and they can sell, or is that is going to be a completely different ballgame from that perspective? Well, at this point in time, that is, I don't even believe that is on the table at the federal level or the provincial level. I think you've raised a good question on the craft side of things, but from the from the production facility, you know, the the security and the follow up as from the seed to the, from the seed to their store uh, is quite a rigorous process uh, tracking all that. So at this point in time, to allow a craft grower to open up and you know start retailing their craft cannabis would kind of go against the whole idea of how we're going to control this culture at this time. So at this point in time, uh, it's my understanding that you know the province of British Columbia has been in some good conversations with the feds tool to move forward to allow some of these craft growers to grow. However, saying that, those craft growers will need then to find a way to get their product to the store shelves, which will probably mean they'll have to maybe tag up with some a little bit bigger place because they'll still have to have all kinds of testing on the cannabis and then, of course, the packaging as well. So you may have that Nelson Bud that comes to the store shelf in Camelops or wherever, but it's going to be also tracked and ensured that that product is, has met all the rigorous testing. And I guess my last question, Dave, is with the Agricultural Land Reserve, there has been, I know, some uh, discussion in the Lower Mainland about whether or not to allow marijuana uh, grow operations in there. How's the city tackling that? Is that an open season in ALR land or no? So again, you know, obviously we in Camels, we do have some agricultural land that's not within the land reserve. 
But specifically, um, you know, is my understanding that the Agricultural Land Commission basically says that cannabis is a agricultural product and that that product is be is allowed to be grown on agricultural land. It's just how it's grown, whether it's an open field to grow or whether it's in a building, and the building can't be a hard-bottomed cement slab on the agricultural land. It has to be grown in something different. So there is some regulations specifically to agricultural land, reserve land. Um, in Kamloops, agricultural land is agricultural land, and we had regulated it similar to anything else, and, and those proximities for the building and how it's built would have to meet the building code and other regulations through a zoning bylaw. Okay. Going before council, any anticipations of, uh, you know, any issues there, or do you think it'll just pass as is? Well, I think this is the second and third reading this meeting. So, again, after that passes, then it's going to go to the public hearing. So it'll be interesting to hear from the public when you go to the public hearing whether there's any concerns raised. Uh, you know, again, you know, at this point in time, we're treating a, a cannabis production, whether it's a, a you know, micro-grower or whether it's a large grower. At this point in time, it's all the same. Um, but it'll be interesting whether there's any conversation around whether people think there needs to be a loosen the regulations and these micro-grows could be in other areas of town as well and i think that's an opportunity to i think look at a site specific is what is the impact on that micro grow and you know who knows what the federal government may come up with is can you be a micro grower and maybe a producer of edibles or whatever we have no idea where this culture is going yet so lots of questions ahead you know more regulations down the road once it all unfolds uh, but yeah, at this point in time, it'll go to public hearing, and I don't suspect from the from the uh, council there'll be many questions at this time. Perfect stuff, Dave. Appreciate the time as always. Have a good day. That was the city of Kamloops business license inspector talking about legal cannabis production in the Kamloops area. His name's Dave Jones, and that's it for today's Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. Fourteen hundred Clearwater. 7.1 Chuswa from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM.